So they said, um, can you do the afternoon session? Because we need people to be awake while Superman is speaking. So um, uh, we had from this morning, Simba was showing us these verses, uh, you know, these uh, coded verses, and this incredible arrangement. So how many of you were impressed by that? No, wrong question. <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, um, where 10 is like blown away, completely blown away, and one is somewhat impressed. Where were most of you? Uh, Anyone less than eight? Nobody less than eight? Come forward, there's fine is being made. Anyone less than eight? Nobody less than eight? Nobody? Seven, eight? Yeah? Seven, eight? And you're on peril. See, the point I wanted to make actually is that It's very impressive to see it, isn't it? Like, you can't deny it. And even if, um, whether you're a devotee or not, it's impressive. So, um, but the, th the thing is that what we're impressed by there is not a fraction of what the Goswamis actually gave us. The real thing that you will be impressed by, isn't it? So, over the next few days, Super will be taking us through more and more layers of what the Goswamis have revealed. But can you just imagine, like when I was, I, 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 I'd seen one or two of those verses before and heard some of that, but certainly not all of those things. And I was suddenly thinking, wow, this is really incredible. Like really like just blown away by it. And at the back of my mind, I was thinking, it is incredible. But at the same time, it's kind of like, compared to what the, 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 the full revelation of the spiritual world and the Rasa theology as uh, we've heard, and the, the, you know, everything from the definition of bhakti to its intimate and intricate detailing is revealed by the Goswamis. Now compare that to an arrangement in terms of, um, you know, a mantra or different things. Uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's, not the, it's not the full scope of what they've given us. But what's interesting also is that when we hear things, just kind of um, long introduction to what I'm going to say, when we, when we um, hear things from a, uh, from a material source, for some reason, we seem to uh, like an academically, materially accredited source, for some reason we seem to give it more credence and credibility than if the Bhagavatam says it. Do you find that? Like, that's why sometimes when we're speaking about Christian consciousness, we use material examples. This scientist said that, this, um, you know, this whatever, academic said that, this sports person said that. I mean, who cares? Like, at one level, who cares? But for some reason, it actually opens a door, right, for a message to get in where that door may otherwise be closed. And part of the process of um, spiritual life is to open the door to uh, the Bhagavatam's message. So uh, in this morning's session uh, and, and yesterday's session, we heard of 
a number of kind of very important points, which we'll talk a bit about. I can't, you know, obviously there were some very significant um, uh, points around the spiritual essence and um, concepts like rasa and others. And in these afternoon sessions, we'll talk a bit, of, uh, just explore a bit more about the more kind of, um, I'd like to say basic, but the, the, the kind of levels of this, of, so spiritual life and knowledge goes through these three stages we hear. Sambandha, Videya, Parijana, right? So Sambandha is knowledge which builds and helps reveal our identity and our relationship with Krishna. Yeah, Abhidaya is acting, the knowledge that helps us act in that relationship, and Parajana is the goal of that. So um, this morning was about Tattva, so we're going to speak about Tattva, and also talk about um, epistemology. Remember that, um, these points? You better remember it, because there's an experiment coming up, which is going to be very painful if you don't remember it. Physically painful. So, um, <laughs> so. I will be inflicting the pain. Can we uh, turn that on? Okay. All right. So, in the spirit of um, people who have heard me speak about this for the last few minutes, and uh, in the spirit of referring to material authority um, to open some doors, we'll start here. Um, so, Victor Frankl. Everyone know Victor Frankl? Yeah. Oh, nobody knows. Okay. So, Victor Frankl. Um, uh, a physician who was um, in Auschwitz, I think it was Auschwitz, it was Auschwitz, was it? Yeah. Um, in Auschwitz uh, for a number of years, like, uh, and he was a, a prisoner there who went through, as you can imagine, some horrific uh, experiences. He wrote a book um, based on his notes from his experiences in the concentration camp. Now, his, he then went on to become um, a leading psychologist, he went to study in the US, um, Harvard and other places, and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which were based on his notes from the concentration camp, became the leading and most influential uh, book on psychology. His, his research uh, that he then carried out based on his notes became some of the most, if not the most, influential psychological work in the last century. Okay, so this is like a very, very highly regarded academic, so you should believe him. Okay, that's the message. Um, this is what he says. One of the things he says. But what's also interesting is that so much of Victor Frankl's work is quoted in modern psychology, but his most important observations about spirituality are completely ignored. So let's hear what he has to say. The consciousness of one's inner value is anchored in higher, more spiritual things and cannot be shaken by camp life. But how many free men, let alone prisoners, possess it? When I read, I mean, this is like a really striking quote. Um, and if we take it apart, what it's saying is that, remember, when he's talking about inner value, these are people who've been turned into less than animals, right? So their sense of inner value in a concentration camp is like sub-zero. So he's saying that he observed that many people even living in those camps where they were treated like worse than animals, maintained a very strong sense of inner value. Whereas others completely lost it, became felt degraded and felt, um, can you just move this? I, I can't see that. Is that okay if we move it temporarily? 
So, um, so that's there. So, and, and he says that, but if their identity, right, if their consciousness is focused on their identity in terms of a spiritual anchor, then they were able to maintain a sense of inner worship. So this is an important point that we're going to come back to. Because um, if we don't, then our equivalent of camp life, which is our sufferings in the material world, are going to lead to some very troubling things in our life. Um, I remember I, I gave this talk to uh, about two or three years ago to um, some teachers in Avanti, and um, I thought that let's not lie to them because there's a thing in education which is about you know go get material success and you'll be happy basically you know work hard study hard get a degree go out get a job you'll be happy. And we heard what the greatest line in the world was. Um, and Victor Frankl thinks the same. Don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so at the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or at the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Success will follow you precisely because you have forgotten to think of it. Now, what, now, why is it that perhaps the greatest psychologist of the last century is saying this stuff, and yet the material world is going in a completely different direction? Why is it that we choose to ignore this, right? So like, that's, a, that's, that's one question we have to ask ourselves. And the other is that like, this, is, this is like black and white, right? I mean, it's very clear the message that's coming from this in terms of what, what leads to happiness and what leads to um, the opposite. And this is what the Gita says, isn't it? Isn't, isn't this what, part of what Krishna says to Arjuna? That you have the right to, um, to act the to the fruits of your activities, right? So, now that we know this, okay? If, so if this is true, if happiness cannot be successfully chased, yeah, which is one half of what I said, and if real inner value is in spiritual things, okay, then what is the result of not valuing the spiritual life, and what is the result of us being trained to chase happiness? Because that's what's, that, that's, that's what's going on. Like we are being trained to chase material happiness and to ignore the spiritual aspect. So, um, and this is this is where we come to where the um, the Bhagavatam kind of shines through in terms of what it's saying to us um, and and the idea of the the purpose of the knowledge of and, and kind of aspect of tattva, which Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is telling the Goswamis to establish to address these issues. What is it that we are supposed to be doing? So this is the this is the consequence. The question is like what what you know what is the result of this of not valuing spiritual life and being trained to chase success. So there's one one consequence 
is missed opportunities. So there was this study where they asked people to pay to a group pursuit. Okay? Before you pay to a group pursuit, they said to everyone, for 30 seconds or a minute or whatever it was, this is in one collateral space, I think it's called outliers. They said, for 30 seconds to one control group, they said, not control group, one group, they said, you um, put yourself in the position and imagine that you're a football hooligan. Okay, so you think about that. Put yourself, how does it feel, how do you look, what do you do, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? So really get into that space for 30 seconds. To the other group, they said, for 30 seconds, pretend you're a math professor at the university. Again, that trivial pursuit, the differential of what the result was, was something like, I can't remember, just like 7 or 8%. So like 44% versus 53% or something like that in terms of correct answers. So like, you see what's happening? The consciousness, and this is just 30 seconds, like the consciousness is being identified onto something. It's being channeled in a certain way and it's leading to a direct, tangible result instantly between Bet performing better or worse, just because you are identifying yourself with a football hooligan versus a math professor. Obviously, nobody's in a space where they actually believe it, so they don't even believe it, but they're just absorbing themselves for a very short period of time, and it leads to such a psychological change that it results in this, this difference. Okay, so hold that thought in your head. The next thing, oh, there you go, this class, 42, Okay, next thing is, Misdirected lives. So Srila Prabhupada gives this famous example that we're busy cleaning the cage and we forget that the bird inside is dead. It's dying because we're not feeding it, we're not looking after it, right? So this, the, the bird represents the soul, the cage represents the body, everyone's busy taking care of the body. Meantime, the soul is floundering uh, because we're not paying it anything, right? So, so, um, if we imagine, like, you know, like this is another thing that which we tied into this lesson on light and the message to the teachers was that, you know, we talk about unlimited potential, like it's like a nice catchphrase. Everyone's got unlimited potential. You've got unlimited potential. You can do what you like in life. You can achieve whatever you want. Just set your mind to it. You've got unlimited potential. That's a lie. Sorry to tell you that, but you know the thing is, if if you imagine, imagine this, right? This, look at missed opportunities. Such a difference on just that change in consciousness. Now imagine, if you think that you're the body versus if you think you're the soul, what is the difference? For your whole life, if you think you're the body versus you think you're the soul, can you imagine what difference in consciousness that has and then therefore the potential you have? If, if you believe that you're the body, you cannot say you have unlimited potential. That is just an absurdity. It's like, it's like me saying, this phone has unlimited potential. It can become the president of the United States if it wishes to. That's a really bad example. You know, this episode, okay? you know unlimited <laughs> potential. You know, like, you know, like, imagine something really, like, it can become Albert Einstein, you know, that kind of level of intelligence. You can't attribute unlimited potential to something material. The definition, as we know, and the characteristics according to science itself is that it's limited in certain ways. 
Otherwise, you couldn't define it. It has parameters. And yet, we lie to ourselves about things like this. And so, um, but there's one more thing, which is even worse. Well, if not even worse, at least as bad. So there's this idea that we're restraining based on our identity, based on the wrong identity. Now, and this is what the scriptures are telling us, is that stop thinking you're the material body because you are limiting yourself really badly. It's not good for you, materially or spiritually. So one thing is limiting ourselves, missing opportunities, misdirecting our lives towards something when it's supposed to be, you know, like just completely missing the whole picture here. But there's something even worse. Anyone guess what that is? Consequence of this type of thinking. Anyone have a guess? Oh, sorry, this is not a. Um, you can just guess because my answer is going to be yours. So, yeah. Um, if you only have one life. Okay, so what's the consequence of that? Well, you'll be partying too hard and trying too many different things that will probably. Very good, very good. Very good. Okay, so you only live once, yeah? Um, the fact that when you take to it, and you think that all these things will bring you happiness, but they actually hurt you more. So it's actually quite painful. Yeah, I think very good. Very good. What else? Anyone else? Yeah? Yeah, kids, there's the existential issue that <laughs> basically we're stuck in some time we're going round and round. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah? Yeah, okay, so similar, like, right, we just missed something. Okay. All right. Here's my, here's my uh, offering. <laughs> you know what that is? I looked up, I Googled it. Um, <laughs> huh? Devil worship. Devil worship, thank you. <laughs> I, I was trying to find a call for the symbol for Anakin. Um, so, the, the other consequences, and listen carefully, because this is an important one, and it may not be one that you have kind of. Um, fully appreciate it. But it occurs to me and um, that and others have spoken about it that um, what this enables you to do is to validate anything. There are no bounds here. So one of the biggest lies is that you can have an atheistic uh, world order and still have morality. I know you want to challenge that, which we'll come to. So let me just play it out. If you don't believe in the soul, if you believe this, you're, you're this material body, you are uh, this body, then what difference does it make? 
where, where is the, what is the basis of morality? What is the basis for me saying, this is right, this is wrong, you shouldn't do this, you should do that? What's the basis of saying you shouldn't kill somebody, you shouldn't you know, um, uh, steal, you shouldn't do devil worship? What is the basis of saying that? So put yourself in the shoes of somebody who believes that. On what basis can you say that I, we should still live a moral life? You shouldn't worship the devil and kill people. Yeah, okay, so that suits you. But if I want to kill you, that suits me. Yeah. But it doesn't suit me, so I'll push back. That's okay, but you can push back on it, but I'm still okay. The law, the government, and the world order should not stop me from killing you. Isn't it? Anyone else? On what basis? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, so uh, Sean was saying that what, what's good? What's good for me? If it, if it, so I, it's not good for me if you kill me. So therefore, you shouldn't kill me. But the point is that it may not be good. For, you may not want me to kill you. But if I want to kill you, the government shouldn't stop me. Isn't our self-interest to have morality? Because on a wider scale, we may not be able to do every little thing we want, but it gives us more freedom. Yeah. Like if I know that no one is allowed to kill me, then. Yeah, you benefit morality on the basis that you're saying, so the, the point being made now is that you sh we should have laws, we should have morality, because for the system, on a system level, it's better for everyone, right? But at an individual level, at an individual level, you can't, have you, have you, have you justified that? Like, at the end of the day, and if you take it even to the extreme of the system level, okay, at a society level, who cares if you go extinct? Who cares if the human species goes extinct? Why do you care? The rest of society. No, why, why should... Okay, you have to put your position, self in the system. You're in charge of the world. Why, and you believe that there is nothing. Why do you care if the human, uh, human species goes extinct? Then you're not in charge of anything. Huh? Then you won't be in charge of anything. But why, who cares if you're in charge or not? You want to be in charge. But you're going to die, no? Yeah. So like, and there's nothing. How about if you want to uphold so, history? So? How about if you want to uphold history? Why? Why do you want to uphold history? Because you want to be, because you want to form your own legacy. Yeah. To be known. Why? Sorry? To have your own legacy. Sorry? <laughs> yeah, but why? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, so the point being made now is that we can live forever through our legacy, right? So if we live through our legacy, then therefore, uh, for whatever reason, that might be a, a, an excuse to justify having morality. Okay, we'll take a couple of them and I'll kind of come to all of them in one. Okay, go on. Okay, but for a, for a bad person who likes to feel, who likes to do bad things, that should be okay. Like we don't stop people buying an iPhone and smashing the phone, do we? Like we don't. I mean, if, I, 
if you if you want to buy an expensive piece of furniture or jewelry or technology or whatever, and then you want to burn it or destroy it, nobody nobody tells you not to. There's no law against it. No questions. Sorry, what was the question? What's, what's the premise that an atheistic person is intrinsic, intrinsically bad? What's the premise? Yeah, like, why, why can't an atheistic person also be natural, like, love and caring? No, no, but what is the basis of their love and care? See, there are two yeah, things they, there. But they can also receive happiness if, if, if they want to care and protect society and be able to receive a sense of gratification. Yeah, that's okay. So an individual can want to do that. But they have, what right do they have? On what basis are we forcing other people to behave in that way. See, right now we have a moral law. We have a law. We have a law based on principles, and this comes with the legacy point, that we're telling people, behave like this for what? Now, if you take spirituality out of it, what is it that, and if you want to take it to an extreme level, like one extreme level is what, because the human society goes bad, right? The other extreme level is, okay, if you believe only in chemicals, what are the laws of science that dictate the behavior of chemicals. So you've got electromagnetic forces, you've got gravitation, and you've got nuclear, right? What else have you got going on? So if you've got those laws, where is your free will residing? What possesses free will? No, no, right, so like, if, and if, once you get rid of free will, where does judgment, law, because basically, I'm a bag of chemicals, what are you telling me, like, I mean, if I killed him, I killed him, like, what's the, I mean, you know, it's just chemicals acting in the way chemicals act. Um, so purely from an evolutionary perspective, uh, if there is an interest of those chemicals to make one... No, 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 no. A chemical can have, not have its interest. Um, but for that chemical to produce bad chemicals... A chemical does not have motive. You cannot attribute motive to a chemical. Under which scientific law are you attributing motive to a chemical? I mean, that's just crazy. We do it, but it's crazy, and that's what the eighth, like, that's what the materialistic movement is like. You, you know, all this stuff. Okay, you've got your scientific laws. Tell me under which scientific law you are attributing free will to that chemical. Where is it? No, 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 chemicals, no, chemical, no. See, be careful. Chemicals producing chemicals. Okay. How is that happening? Uh, through uh, complex mechanisms. Which are? Uh, chemical interaction. Anything to do with intent? Anything to do with motive? Anything to do with free will? Anything that you can pin on and say, you should not have done this? Where are you going to put it? So where 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 will you where will you go with that? So that's another extreme level, right? So like we'll come onto this. I'm going to move on because uh, no no not you. I'm just saying like I'm going to move on because there's a the, the simple point I wanted to make here is underpinning all of these lies are some really big fundamental lies which even 
We don't even see even though they're in front of us. But the fact is, if you look at, name the three, in your mind, in the last century, who are the three most destructive, corrupted, mean people on the planet? Name them. Stalin, Mao. Okay. I, I mean, I could have predicted these three names. Derek. Right? Derek. Okay. So, hold it together. So, Stalin killed how many people? Oh, I think it was 25, but we'll go with your number because it's So, okay, 25 million to 40 million for Stalin. Hit that. 11? Okay, I'll take that. Mao? 60. Okay, those are the numbers we know. I mean, how does somebody, how does somebody kill 60 million people and is still worshipped today? How is that possible? How does somebody kill 25 to 40 million and still regarded as the family, you know, like one of the family fathers. Of, anyway. So the point is, guess what these three people had in common? Thank you. Like Stalin, like the whole Nazi kind of movement came from like this idea of eugenics, right? And eugenics was about like gene manipulation, which comes from Darwinistic evolution. Like this idea that you can manipulate human whatever, because it's based on genes, isn't it? So like, it's based on, like, and so you get, you get this very corrupted, okay, now we're gonna come on to this. We, we have, um, you know, Shri Prabhupada gives this really famous example, right, where he says, what is the difference between a living body and a dead body, right? Everyone's heard that. You've heard Shri Prabhupada speak on it very powerfully. He gave a class in a, so he gave a talk in a, in a, I think it was in a school where he said to a child, you know, point to your arm, point to your leg, point to your head, etc. And he said, point to yourself, and he was like, to that point. So, um, Shri Prabhupada made this very fundamental, powerful point, very simple. And it's so simple that sometimes we just like, miss it. We just completely miss it because it's just so simple. But the thing is that Srila Prabhupada speaks on this so many times because as part of this idea, like, you know, we're gonna, we, we, we talked about this point about tattva. You can't really get into tattva until this one point is very clearly established in our minds. And that's why Srila Prabhupada emphasizes so much. You are not this body. Such a basic point. Because that leads then to other conclusions. If you're not this body, then hey, where are you? Right? And that's why this the conversation starts between Sanatana Goswami and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Everyone calls me a scholar, but I don't even know who I am. And then, you know, we heard the example this morning about that you, you can say that, man, you're on this train and somebody says, you know, who are you going? Like that whole thing, right? So, this is a very powerful thing to think about for yourself. What is the difference between a living body and a dead body? And this, is, this question is being asked for like, you know, so many decades. 
and so much scientific advancement, so much medical research, so much this, that, and the other. And everybody comes up with like scientists and others come up with very like complicated and convoluted and you know technical and jargon-filled responses, which don't answer the question because we still don't understand what is the difference between a living body and a dead body. What happens at that transition <coughs> when the living, uh, when we consider it dead, the body? So, um, is this example clear? We don't need to dwell on it unless there are questions. Like, does anybody have, is it, okay. Does anyone think that they have an answer to this question? Like, a, 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 you know, a kind of, what is a, like a credible or even somewhat believable answer to this question? Because, I'll come to you in a second. So, because it's so fundamental, if we don't, we are left in a, in a real situation where we have to consider spiritual life in a different light. So yeah, please. Because you're not just, you're either breathing or you're not. Yeah, okay, so you're breathing or you're not, but we have machines that can make you breathe, that can expand and contract your lungs, right? So that's not what's keeping you alive, necessarily. But what's the living force? No, 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 that's the sort of, yeah, okay, fine. So that's, you're, you're taking a spiritual answer, right? Because that is, that is Shiva Prabhupada's answer. But what, what is an alternative answer to that spiritual answer? which talk about this, that, or the other, or neurons firing, and this and that. But isn't it like, you know, we have so much at our disposal in terms of technology, yet this very simple, basic, fundamental answer is, uh, question is not answered. So, anything else on this side before we move on? No alternatives? No? Yeah, Marie? Which, which body? Like anything, like they, you know, like they could have left up a heart now or whatever. Yeah. And if they, but if too, like too many after that vital part has failed, they can't replace it because too many cells have died already. So that's what that, I mean. I mean, I made this argument once to a doctor, and they, that's what I got. Yeah, I can tell you from very um, <laughs> uh, extensive experience that. Doctors don't know. <laughs> As in, you know, like, doctors deal at such a gross level, they have no idea about subject. Even if you look at psychiatry, like we're talking about mental health, like what is the answer to mental health drugs? Even though drugs are not like fully, you know, effective. Like they have no real insight into the subtle. Like you have a heart attack, crack the ribs open. I, I mean, I did first year anatomy, got me got kicked out of medicine. I mean, when they take you to anatomy, I thought you'd be that there's some subtlety to it. There isn't. Like, when they say, like, look at the heart, it's basically carved, car like, you know, like, there's bulk cut Italians, crack the ribs open, 
And like, you're yanking out. I mean, it's just like gross. If you go look at the brain, get a hacksaw and saw the skull open. I mean, it's not like something like, you know, subtle and like, you know. It's insane. This is the level at which medicine kills you. It's not, it's not like they have some special insight into the subtle nature of life. They just don't. Even though they, they, that some may pretend to do that. Yes, Oh, you're wrong. Could they not argue it's just like it's just a mechanical, the body's seemingly like, um, like a mechanical item, yeah. like a fan breaks down. Yeah. There's no soul in the fan. Yeah. So it's the same with the body. Something breaks, breaks down. down. Yeah. yeah, but that's fine. You can make the argument. I'm saying, what is it? What's broken down? It's the same way in the fan. Something will be able to. Well, fan, I can tell you what's broken down. <laughs> we can fix the fan. So then you should be able to fix the body and bring it back to life. You want to use that example. Well, if your fan know? breaks down, you get the part, put the part in, fan starts working, no? So then the same should apply to the body. No? Okay. So now we're going to come on to the, um, another topic, which I think is another fundamental underlying principle of... Um, Okay. Somebody please define the word chance for me. Anyone? Please define the word chance. Probabilities. Okay. Say more. What put? So something based on probabilities. Okay. Can we get a hand up? Yeah, I was going to say the probability of something occurring. Okay. Probability of something occurring. Yeah. The probability of a random event occurring. The probability of a random Speed, 
etc., etc. Is that a random event? No. No. If I wanted to set that machine's parameters to toss a coin a hundred times, heads every time, could I do it? Possibly. Yeah. Okay. So in that controlled environment, what does that mean that when I toss a coin, without all of that stuff, it's 50-50? What does it mean that when I toss a coin, it's chance that it's heads? It means I don't know. It means I don't know what? I don't know all the variables, thank you. I don't know what variables. <coughs> I don't know atmospheric pressure. I don't know, I can't control exactly every time the strength of which I'm tossing the coin. I don't know, etc., etc., etc. the positioning on my thumb, the way I flick it, etc., etc. Right? If I was to control that, absolutely control that, it would no longer be chance. It would no longer be unpredictable. It would be absolutely predictable. So what chance means is, I don't know. I don't know the cause of something, because I, if I did know the cause of it, I'd be able to reduce this idea of chance. Chance basically doesn't exist. If chance exists, where does it exist? Where does chance exist? Name, name something, you know, I was thinking about this. You know in computers you have like a random variable, like a random, you can generate random numbers on an on Excel sheet or something, right? But what is that, how does a computer do that? With a list of... Anybody knows? Somebody knows? Actually knows? Or you don't, no, no guessing yet? Uh, basically it takes the um, time of the like processor of the computer, and it takes like the last digit, and it returns that back. What a nonsense, right? Not you. The <laughs> process. The process. See, what it's doing is, you're telling the computer, give me a random number. Random means what? Random means what? What is random? Unknown. But it shouldn't be. It's not correlated. But what this is doing is, it's taking something, and it's absolutely correlating it to something. Why? Because the computer doesn't have a... Where does randomness come from? You're basing it on something. If I ask you to pick a number from 1 to 10, what would you say? 7, okay. How comes you're the only one who said 7? Because it's not a random number. Because for some reason, when somebody asks you to think of numbers 1 to 10, most people say 7. Why is that? It's not all people will say 7, but the point is, it's not random. Where does this idea of randomness come from? Like, so we... One second. So we... We attribute randomness and chance to stuff we don't understand. Oh, it was by chance I got hit by a car. It wasn't. You know why? Because you've got karma you don't know about. If you take away karma, if you take away this notion, so anyway, uh, more to say, but we'll come on to it. Go ahead. Uncertainty principle, yeah. Yeah. So, how would you say that? Yeah, so Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty is this idea. When you observe it, you're influencing it. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a uh, you know, the, the number that they put in, which is to make the equations work, right, based on Heisenberg's principle. But that's the point. It's not that you can, it's not that randomness exists, it's that we've figured out a way to um, 
to, uh, to account for the effect of observation on something. You haven't removed or you haven't explained the randomness. How is it chance? Because what you've done is, at the end, what, it's, what Heisenberg's principle is saying, right, is that as soon as you observe something, you've influenced. So that's why you can't, you can't, um, you can't, uh, so, so it's, a, it's a workaround to the fact that how do you make the, how do you make the equation work? It's not, it's not explaining anything. Because you can't explain it. Uh, so and that's the point that it's, it's the idea that, um, because this point comes up a lot, right? Like about Heisenberg's principle being the, the principle of um, uh, like the uncertainty principle. Um, but it's the same thing, like you know, when when they uh, when the guy um, uh, when the guy who came up with um, uh, chaos theory um, and he was using the butterfly effect as an explanation of. Um, Things that are distance and how it how it's not how you know a small change can lead to something. The point is that we can't make the calculations. That's the issue. We can't make the calculations that determine that. But instead of saying that we can't make the calculations to determine that, we say that we don't know. So, like for example, gene mutation is a classical example. So they base that on randomness. What does that mean? It means that we don't know why that happened. It's not like you know, you can, you can prove chance and randomness. Okay. Um. Uh, for those of you who've seen this, uh, I don't remember now, it was uh, it must have been 10 years ago or something where I did this. Um, so, for those of you who know it, So I need a volunteer, probably from this side of the room, you can thank me later. <laughs> Who we are? Oh, we've got someone. Yeah. 
that the first place you want to go? No, I asked the audience. You can ask the audience. That's the one of you, yeah? Ask the audience. Given the probability that you are all let's add some let's add some um, uh, let's add some pain to this process, right? So you ask the question and then you have to carry out what you say. Based on based on the feedback you get. Thank you. 
，再也不要再放弃
So this is what I did before I came here. And uh, Google said four and a half hours. That was another biggest lie. <laughs> but this is what Google said, right? Four and a half hours, this is the route. This is the route we take. Now at this point in time, if I'm a skeptic, knowing that we know, knowing what we know about epistemology, and I'm a skeptic, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? How do I know? Sorry. Okay. How do I know that that's even true? How do I know that the field center is there and that that's the route to take to the field center? I mean, the map could be wrong, right? Could the map be wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. You believe Google could be wrong. <laughs> okay, that's progress. Okay, you've used it before, you, it's been around. But how do I know before I leave home, because this is a big thing, I've never used Google before. I've never used Google before, it's a big decision in my life. I want to know what's true before I leave home. I might have worked for them. But how do I know? Okay, you don't know, you just, you just think that you know. But I need to know, no? Otherwise, how am I going to get out of the house? If you don't know the other If you don't know the other option, if you don't know that there's another option, or um, if you don't know the actual way, then you'd follow the way that says that, suggests that is the way, if that makes sense. Okay. So if I don't have another option? You just, yeah, you just believe it because there's no other yeah. option. Yeah, okay. Yeah? Why don't you use Google for small distances first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But I want to know before I leave home. I want to be sure. I don't want to bat around. I don't want to experiment out. I just want to know. Just tell me. I want to know. Yeah? Use Street View. Street View? Yeah. Street View will also invite you. will show you that it's exactly the place you want to go because you, because you found out, okay, we're going FST all over. You probably searched it after that. Or on the information pack, there was a photo of the place. <laughs> <laughs> So the point is that 
you know, like the reason why we do these things, the reason why we uh, go down this kind of approach to life in general, forget it, I'm not talking about spiritual stuff, just material stuff, is a process of gradual faith. You, you look something up, you go out the road, the first sign seems in accordance with what you've been shown. You carry on because it's still correct. Now, if I, if I took the first road and they said, the, road, the first road you're going to come to is the A40, and it happens to be the B39, am I still going to have faith in this map? No. You're not, right? So, like, that's the point, that with the process of um, uncovering truth is a gradual process. It's the same for material things as it is for spiritual things. You know, like before somebody takes up spiritual practice, prove to me God exists, kind of argument. Well, guess what? You can't prove to me you exist. Forget about God. <laughs> so like, or prove to me that there's consciousness and it's not just matter. Well, you don't even know what matter is. What are you talking about consciousness for? So like, the point is that it's, uh, it's, we have one bar of evidence for material, ordinary things. And we have a completely higher bar for spiritual things. As opposed to saying, on the face of it, this looks rational, it looks reasonable, it's spoken by somebody who does, is not accustomed to lying, who, who, who has, no, has shown no evidence of being malicious towards me, and therefore facing a small amount of it in the process. And so there are like just these basic things which um, like we can use as ways that we see that, okay, it's reasonable. That's why Krishna gives so many examples in chapter 2 of the Gita, like very, very beginning of the Gita, which is giving basic examples, right? As we move through childhood to youth to old age, similarly, the, um, like the idea that we, we can relate it to our experience, therefore it's reasonable. It's reasonable. I remember my body when I was two years old, and it was not the same body. Can anyone argue with that? Or can anyone also argue that you are the same person? Isn't that reasonable to say that you're not the body? How is that not reasonable? Your identity is the same. Your body is completely different. Are you the body? This is the very beginnings of the Gita. Um, and so many other examples that uh, Krishna gives to Arjuna. Just like somebody takes off old clothes and puts on new ones. Similarly, the soul takes off the old body and takes on a new one. Is there anything to suggest that when we can see that the soul is constant through, and the identity is constant through this life in changing bodies, that at the point of death, we, when we change the body again, the same thing we've been doing all our life, changing bodies, now we change the body again, that the soul won't continue. Why is that not reasonable? Is it credible? Is the person who's saying this, is they, are they credible? Are they knowledgeable? Do they lie? Are they a good character? If you take this benchmark and apply it to Acharyas, to the Goswamis, to Srila Prabhupada, and apply it to uh, the world of materialistic um, scientists. Don't you make a judgment? Who's more credible? Who lives by the principles they espouse? Whose character is beyond flaw? 
who speaks in a way that you feel is in your interest. So like, is it credible? Is the person credible? Then is it desirable? Do I even want to, like, not worrying about whether Google Earth is, uh, Google Maps is right or wrong coming to Oriolton if I don't even want to go to Oriolton? So the point is, like, is the destination what we want? And that's why knowing what the destination is, is important for us. Do we want to go to Radha and Krishna and Mithali? Or do we like it there? Why does Srila Prabhupada speak so strongly about the material world being a place of suffering? Why does Krishna say in the Gita? Because it's to tell us there's a better place. Why do you think about going there? If you're happy here, that's fine. It's your choice. And then the fourth one is verification. Is there a process of experiential uh, journey? Just like with Google Maps, the process is, well, get out of your house and start the journey. Is there a process by which you can verify whether this is true or not? Not some wishy-washy idea, some sentimental thought. Is there a process that you can verify? And if there is, then it's credible not. And these are the things that because so I'm like, you know, I'm obviously using very um, casual terms here, but in the detailed, forensic, thorough, scientific way in which our acharyas um, have laid out the philosophy of Krishna consciousness, these things are explored in a way which is, uh, as we access it, very compelling. Um, and along these lines, you know, the reasonableness of the Christian consciousness philosophy is unmatched. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, we'll come on to this tomorrow, uh, maybe day after. Um, the idea that you cannot explain what you observe in this world without the principles of Christian consciousness. So we'll go through that. And the part of the idea of understanding a bit more about the Goswamis, their character, their teachings, their mood, um, their renunciation. Why does somebody give up? Why does Ramana Das Goswami, who is the son of a billionaire in today's money, why does he give it all up and go to live under a tree, a different tree, every night? Why does somebody do that? Why? Can somebody say, why would somebody do that? Okay, so they've had a better experience. Crazy, 
I'm intelligent people who don't write poetry in the phone room, we still this morning. Why does somebody of that intelligence, of that capacity, do that? And why did they, you know, like, on, on, on the basis of which they have kind of described the spiritual world to us, this is something that we desire. This is something that we wish to have access to. And um, so I'll conclude here, and because there's, uh, there's conscious of time. But I, I, in this session, really just wanted to highlight this point that um, we are much more easily fooled by things than we think. We accept things, as uh, we heard this morning, we accept things on, in the material world, we accept things so easily without hardly any interrogation. And we have such a different bar for spiritual life. And um, to highlight that, by understanding the lives and the character of the Goswamis, it gives us an insight into, into thinking that there must be something here. Goswamis were not accustomed to life. They had no motivation to give up everything they gave up just to write books for our benefit, by the way. Um, for what reason? So, uh, and obviously that brings us to Shilapar, right? Coming to the West. He's happy in Vrindavan. He's experiencing what he's experiencing in Vrindavan. Why do you need to come here and tell us? Why does he need to suffer heart attacks on his way here, live in poverty with crazy people trying to kill him, drug addicts, etc., etc.? Just to tell us, he has no need to be here. There's no personal need to be here. So we'll end here, and um, we'll turn around tomorrow morning with our next piece of the puzzle. Okay. Hare Krishna. Shri Prabhupada.